It's an appropriate time to introduce uh, Advent because uh, Advent is this season of expectation. And uh, and we celebrate Advent a lot of different ways. Last year we walked through the entire Christmas series was around Advent. This week we just or this year um, our series is a little bit different, but we still want to experience kind of uh, the themes of Advent. And uh, and Advent's all about expectation. Just like I expect, come on now, the Niners to be good someday. But what's even better is this week uh, as we launch the season, we're going to be talking about hope. And uh, those of you I know who have been Seattle fans for a long time know what it's like to have hope and then have hopes dashed and then have to learn to hope again. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> but uh, I'm having a little fun with you, but I do want to just uh, talk about this incredible reality that the Christmas season reminds us, reminds us that hope came in to the world. As a matter of fact, I was looking up the word hope and, and looking for a good definition of hope, and I love this definition of hope. Hope means to look forward with confidence. To look forward with confidence. And my hope in this season is that you would be joining me in hoping and looking forward at our future with confidence. Peter, <clears throat> when he thought about the Christmas story and wrote a picture of hope in 1 Peter 1, 3. He said, praise be to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so this week we start the Advent season with this understanding that Christmas, oh man, I practiced this to make sure it worked. There we go. That Christmas is all about hope. And so we light the hope candle this week, and each week, if Advent is new to you, we'll light a candle um, in expectation of the Jesus candle, which will light on Christmas Eve. Um, just so you're aware in your announcements too, the Christmas Eve, we will have a service, uh, 5 p.m., it'll be here. And then the last Sunday of the year, that's not in the announcements, I don't think yet, we take that week off. So write it in your calendar, celebrate, be with your families. I think it's December 28th. It's a, uh, it's a Sabbath Sunday for our church and for you. What day is it? 30th. There we go. Okay. September 30th. And, uh, and so write that in your calendars. You can show up. You're welcome to hang out here. Um, the doors will be locked, but you can hang. Um, <laughs> if you have a key, come on in. Um, <laughs> so we're in this uh, pretty cool season talking about who needs Christmas. And if Christmas is all about hope, then I think that there is a reality that everyone needs hope. You know, uh, scientists did an experiment back in the 90s about hope, and it was this fascinating experiment that they did, and they, they were experimenting on rats, and they took these rats, and they threw them into a vat of water to see how long they would swim and try to survive, and they did two side-by-side -side simultaneous experiments. In one vat, they just threw the rats into the water, in the other one, they threw them into the water, but periodically they reached down and lifted them out. Not enough that they could rest and recover, but just enough that they got out of the water and then they set them back into the water. In the pool of water where they threw the rats into the water and never helped them, those rats drowned within one hour. In the other pool of water, where periodically the scientists reached down and helped them, just lifted them up, not enough that they could rest and recover, but just enough so that they knew someone was there, those rats swim for 24 hours straight. 24 hours straight. See, that's the power of hope. 
Hope can push you through. Hope can keep you fighting. Hope can move you forward. The anticipation that hope is on the way can carry you a long ways. As I was studying this week, I read a story about a young boy. This is in the 90s, 1991, and he was in a horrific accident. In fact, there was a fire involved, and he has suffered very severe burns to his body. He was in elementary school, and at the time, the local elementary school had a program that when kids missed extended amounts of school, they would send a teacher home to that student if they were in the hospital, if they were ill or whatever, in order to help that student keep caught up. So this student's in the hospital, and he suffered very serious burns and very serious injury. As a matter of fact, he's in basically critical condition. They're not sure that he's going to make it. He's missed school for a substantial amount of time, and so it activates this policy, and the teacher who's assigned to him goes to the hospital to meet him. She's not really aware of how severe his injuries are until she gets there, and as she gets there, she realizes, oh my goodness, This is so much scarier in person than I thought it would be. But my job is to come and to keep him caught up. And so she goes ahead with teaching the lesson. And it's a lesson about verbs and adverbs and all of the fun stuff that we don't remember. But we just use them. She teaches the lesson and when she leaves, she's emotional and she's crying because she's convinced that though she taught a lesson, this student just doesn't have much more time. Another week goes by, and the students held on for that week, and so she's assigned again to come and to teach the next lesson. And when she shows up, the nurses are ecstatic to see her. And they say, what did you do last week? He's done nothing but recover. He's been so much stronger. She says, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. I just taught the lesson. It was actually really sad. And they walked in to see the student and, and the student asked, and she asked the student, she said, you've been doing so much better since I got here. And the student replied, he said, you know, I thought I was dying. But when you came and began to teach me, I realized they wouldn't waste the time of a teacher on someone who was dying. So there must be hope that I can live. And that hope changed the trajectory of his life and recovery. You see, we all need hope. And so this morning, we're going to walk into a Christmas story that starts with a tension and a need for hope. But the question is, if Christmas is a thing, then who needs Christmas? And the answer is the whole world. If Christmas is depositing hope, then the answer is the whole world. As a matter of fact, Christmas is a promise. God promised Christmas to the world. Now, that promise is something that we talk about every year around this time. As a matter of fact, some of you, it's good to see you again. It's been last Christmas since I saw you, maybe. It's a time of year when it's time to come to church, and I'm glad that you're here. And uh, I'm excited to, to walk through this. And for some of you, the Christmas story is very familiar because we tell the Christmas story every year. You're guaranteed to get some, come on now, Christmas story at Christmas time. But as I was uh, preparing this, now, now one of the things I always like to say as a disclaimer is we do a lot of kinds of uh, messages here. 
in the last five, six, seven weeks, we've been walking verse by verse through Nehemiah and talking about what the power of vision. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do series. And we're in a series right now. And this series is uh, inspired by another series. So I give credit to the inspiration of that and work with the team to develop this series. And so, uh, so I, I give credit to that. Uh, but I'm excited to walk through this idea and this principle. And I want you to catch this. The Christmas story did not start with a couple who had an unplanned pregnancy. Although often we start telling the story there. The Christmas story actually starts with a couple who was trying to get pregnant and couldn't. About 2,000 years, about 2,090 years, give or take, before Joseph and Mary, there was a couple who was trying to have a baby. And his name was Abram, and her name was Sarah. Now, Abram's name gets changed to Abraham, so I'm going to use Abraham just for uh, all of us to kind of stay connected. But in the scriptures, you may see Abram or Abraham. Both are his names, name. But there's a couple that are trying to have a baby, and they're old. Not like kind of old, like pretty good and old. 75. (laughs) Come on, where's my 55 and uppers? We're going to have a fun Christmas dinner. (laughs) They're 75. Now, 75 is not dinosaur old, but it's pretty old to start thinking about starting a family. Nobody was offended by that one. <laughs> all, my, all my seniors were like, yeah, no, we don't want to start at 75. That's not a good spot. Now, the Christmas story is challenging. We have the story showing up in Matthew and in Luke. It doesn't even show up in Mark and John. It's a crazy story. There's a virgin birth. There's a star. There's shepherds. There's a savior. And we think of those passages as the Christmas story. But I want to take us back to when the Christmas story was first promised to the world. And again, it started with Abram. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Now, Genesis is this incredible book. It's this incredible letter. And, and uh, if you're not familiar with how the scriptures came together, Genesis was, uh, it predates, it wasn't just written for the Bible. It was written thousands of years before we had the Bible. It was written, uh, we believe, mostly probably by Moses. And it was assembled, this history of the Jewish people and the history of the world and God's interaction with them. And this letter was written, and then it was uh, considered to be a sacred text. And so the Jewish historians, they would copy it meticulously and accurately, and they would uh, 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 maintain and presented it. And it became a part of the Jewish scriptures, actually, before it became a part of the Bible. And for 2,000 years, this letter was considered a holy writing by the Jewish people, the story that came out of Genesis and the history of their people. And then later, as the entire Bible was assembled, they took the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament and the story of Jesus and the disciples, and they put those things together about 400 years after the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus, and we now have the scriptures. But this was a letter, a historical written document by the Jewish people of their history and interaction with God, the creator of the universe. And in Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abraham. Now, if you went to church growing up, you probably heard Abraham had a nickname, and they called him what? Father Abraham. Some of you were with me on that, and the rest were like, I don't know, it's not brave enough to talk in church. (laughs) And so Abraham, 
was known as Father Abraham, but when we meet him, we have hindsight. We know the story and we know that the entire Jewish people and race are gonna come out of his lineage, but he doesn't have hindsight in the story. He knows only a couple of facts. And one of those facts are he and his wife are too old to start a new family. It's a weird time in his life because he wants to have a family. God calls him and says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm gonna send you and I'm gonna make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're gonna be a father of nations. And I'm thinking he's probably going, I'd love to just be a father of someone. Nations is aiming big. And if you read through Abram's story, God calls him to go to a place where he was never expecting to go. And we pick up in verse 12. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse one. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, this is a crazy request from God, just so you know. We don't see this as as crazy of a request. If God said, I want you to move to California, some of you would go, man, that's far, and I don't have family there, and that's going to be really hard. It's expensive. Those guys are crazy in California anyways. Who wants to live there? But it would be something, if you felt like it was from the Lord, there might be some fear and trepidation, but you do it. You pretty much know what it's like there. Other than a few crazy tweaks, it's the same laws. It's the same rules, the same kind of things. If God said, I need you to go to a place that's far away, I'm I'm gonna take you, I want you to go to Florida. Some of you would be like, yes. And some of you would be like, no way. But you would have a picture of what life is like there. You could Google it. You could go on a, a, a Zillow and see what houses are going for. You could look at neighborhoods and school districts. Come on now. You could make a plan of what your life will look like. You can look at jobs and you can start networking. You could do all of those things before you made that trip. At this time in history, leaving behind your country, your people, Your household meant you were leaving protection. You were leaving food supplies. You were leaving your legacy. You were leaving your security. And you didn't know for sure where you were going. You could go and experience a culture that would kill you on sight. And so families stuck together and they built wealth and legacy in the same location, generation after generation. So for God to say, I want you to leave your country, I want you to leave your people, I want you to leave your father's household, and then go, and I'll just show you where you're going to be. That's a hard ask. Pack up the U-Haul, leave everything behind, fill up the tank of gas, start going. I'll tell you where you're going to land. First miracle is that Abram was open to this conversation. Some of you are like, thanks, but no thanks. This is a violent time. All his wealth would be on the move, relatively unguarded, moving through people groups and nations. 
As a matter of fact, as he goes, fear grips him at several accounts during the story. If you're familiar with the story, he doesn't do very well. He ends up in Egypt and he's afraid of Pharaoh. He's so afraid of Pharaoh that uh, he recognizes that Sarah, even at 75, is an asset. Come on now. (laughs) And he says to her, and if you're familiar with the story, he says, you know what? Why don't you just tell everyone you're my sister? Because if Pharaoh wants you to join his harem, he'll just kill me. But if, he's, if you're my sister and he wants you, he'll just take you. At least I'll still live. Yeah, that's his plan, just so you know. Father of faith here. It's a crazy thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to do. He doesn't have a great plan other than he's going to hear from God and go. And then comes this promise that God makes to him. This promise that initiates the Christmas story. Verse two, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Um, God, just so we're clear, the great nation season would have probably been in like my 20s and 30s and 40s, maybe 50s and 60s. We'd have been cranking out kids and we'd have had grandkids and there'd been, you know, we know that there is some fertile folks later on in his family, right? Israel, Jacob's, whose name turns to Israel, he's gonna have a dozen boys. So we know that that's a common thing, right? Big families, big protection. Abram's got none. He's got nothing. So here's this crazy promise. I'm gonna make you into a great nation and... I will bless you. I can imagine him going, how am I going to be a great nation when all my resources are here and I have no kids? But here comes the rest of the story, the rest of the promise. He says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Listen to this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is initiating the Christmas story through one person, one couple, two people. And he says, I am going to bless you. I'm gonna curse those that curse you. And I am going to bless you, make you into a great nation. And I love this, all the people on earth. How many of the people? All the people on earth. This is crazy. To be a blessing to other nations was an unheard of concept at this point in history. There wasn't like the, the, the things that we have today where we just send like support and aid to other nations. It didn't work that way. Nations didn't look the way nations look right now. You didn't bless nations, you conquered nations or you made peace treaties with nations. You didn't bless them. You didn't sacrifice to increase their benefit to no benefit of your own. This is a fight for survival, might makes right culture, okay? They are trying to survive. You didn't bless, you survived. And what did it mean that through Abraham, they would get blessed? (laughs) And then I love that it says all people. All people, all people, not just my people, all people. But nations didn't bless one another, they conquered, they enslaved They plundered. This was not normal behavior. So Abraham, in the first Christmas miracle, trusts God. 
He believes God. He hears about this promise, and in faith, he walks out in this promise. Does it go well? Not initially. We know about the interaction that I just shared. And then eventually, through the provision of God, he tries to make it work on his own and takes a much younger bride, handmaiden basically, and has a child. That doesn't work out. Finally, through God's provision and a miracle, they get pregnant. They have a son, Isaac. And Isaac and him have an incredible story with God where God says, are you going to trust me? He goes, yeah. He goes, and I want you to worship. How are you going to worship? Well, just take the life of your son. Wait, what? Abraham trusts God. We know the story. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it before. The Lord provides a young goat or a ram, and Isaac is spared. And then Isaac is his lineage, and he has a couple of kids, Jacob and Esau. One of those names you know well. The other one you don't know as much about. Esau is the oldest. Now, you think you have family dynamics at Christmas that are tough. Jacob and Esau, twin brothers. Esau comes out first, meaning he gets the inheritance, he gets the wealth, he gets the authority of the family, he gets all the stuff. Jacob, the sly guy, is like, details, details, details. Let me negotiate with this guy, my brother, who's not that smart, and is led by his baser appetites. Let me negotiate with him, leverage him, and snag and steal his birthright. And he does. He does. He steals his birthright. He steals his inheritance. He rips him off. And then he flees because he knows that his brother's just going to kill him. And we have this incredible picture. You should read the book of Genesis of Jacob on the run, falling in love, gets duped by his uncle, builds a family, starts building a family, decides to go back, has to deal with his brother. There's some reconciliation, but Jacob steals the birthright. And then Jacob has a ton of kids. God changes his name to Israel, and he has a ton of kids. And you know the story of his kids. Again, you think your family's hard at Christmas? Jacob has a favorite. He gives him a cool-looking coat. Maybe you know that story. Gives him this ornamental decorative coat of many colors and that son is a bit of a dreamer and he likes to tell everyone how awesome his dreams are and what he thinks God's going to do in his life and his big brothers are kind of uh, frustrated by the special treatment he gets and so they make a decision let's just kill him I don't know what your Christmas fights look like but if the rest of your family hasn't gathered around and make it a decision to kill the other one You're doing better than the biblical first family. I'm just saying. Give you a little Christmas perspective. Maybe they interject a little hope, right? So they make a decision. They're like, let's kill him. So they make this big plan. They take him out. They're going to kill him. And then one of the brothers is kind of like, you know what? Maybe if we don't kill him, we sell him. It's like a double win. We get rid of him and we get paid. So they sell him into slavery. And he gets sold into slavery through a series of events. He ends up in Egypt, no longer in the promised land. He's in jail for some 30 years. And God uses that to elevate him to a position. Now listen, throughout all this time, Abram's promise was, I'm going to make you a great nation, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. And then I'm going to use you to bless all the nations, There is no evidence 
that any of this promise is going to happen, except that now at least there's some children. Sometimes hope, sometimes hope doesn't happen in the timing. Sometimes hope is the space between the promise, come on now, and the fulfillment. It's what sustains us. You can imagine this family telling stories about great-grandfather Abraham and how they left the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and, and, and ended up in this place where they now live, which was the land that God promised to him. You can imagine them gathering around the fire, telling stories that God has promised to bless us. We're going to be a huge nation and we're going to bless other nations. And the kids are like, yeah, right. We're tired of the baby brother that's spoiled. Let's just kill him. The amazing family dynamics that are happening here. And so Joseph ends up in Egypt and God elevates him through a series of events. And now he's in a position of power in Egypt. He's serving in Egypt. And a famine comes over the land. As a result, people are fleeing towards the place where there's food and provision, the place that's close to the Nile River where there's water, and they're fleeing to Egypt for help. And Joseph's brothers, through a series of events, end up face-to-face with him, not realizing it's him, asking him for help. Is this how you're going to bless all nations, God? Joseph, having the opportunity to kill all his brothers, has mercy on them and recognizes that God is still doing something in this promise. Now, I don't know about you, but if my brothers thought about killing me, only got one brother, so let's just make it personal. If he thought about killing me, was somehow able to pull off trapping me, selling me into slavery, and then he's in front of me with his hand out, another Christmas miracle. If I don't put him in a rear naked choke... (laughs) (laughs) until he goes to sleep, (laughs) and then we make some decisions. I'm just saying, but Joseph's heart through all of that is to say, you intended this for evil. God had a plan for good. Suddenly, this now forming nation with kids and grandkids heads into Egypt, and they have this season in Egypt where they are now uh, uh, in a land of plenty, And for some season, they start generating more family members. I won't say how that happens. (laughs) Through time, Joseph goes away and a new pharaoh comes who is in charge of Egypt. And he's not particularly enamored with this other people group that has developed inside of his nation. So he decides to turn them all into slaves. And so we pick up the story, this promise from Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation. I'll bless everyone who blesses you. I'll curse whoever curses you. And I'll use you to be a blessing to all the nations. He had a kid, but they weren't a nation. Now they're a nation, but they're slaves. I can imagine this people group telling the story of their history season after season. And then our father Abraham was given a promise that we'd become a nation and he would bless us. And I can imagine the next generation say, bless you, we're slaves. This doesn't feel like a blessing right now. We're making bricks and somehow through whatever mechanical miracles, building pyramids, come on now. We are enslaved and the Jews are powerless 
how are we supposed to bless anyone? Is it, is, is, are we a blessing to bless our captors? Is that the point of the promise? And then, come on now, the story gets really good. We meet Moses. Some of you have seen the Ten Commandments movie. Some of you have seen the Disney version. And God raises up a deliverer out of this people. And through a series of, of incredible events, Moses gets the education that he needs from the Jewish culture, but has the heart to hear and listen to God. He sees a burning bush. It's crazy and insane. And God says, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Come on now. So Moses goes. And Pharaoh's like, sweet, take all your people and go. No. He's like, you know what? I like having slaves. You can get out of here. Moses is like, okay. You can say what you want to say, but here's how it's going to go for you. God's going to send frogs, darkness, water to blood, biting insects, boils, locusts. Come on now. Eventually he's going to kill your firstborn. Pharaoh's like, you guys are a blessing to all people. No. I'm certain that they didn't feel like this nation that had grown up inside of their nation was a blessing to anybody. There was no story in there that said this nation is a blessing. It's not how that looked at all. But through a series of events, come on now, I'm just taking you through the promise. You with me, church? Through a series of events, Moses, by the power of God, leads the nation out. Now it's time for us to be a nation. We can bless other nations. We're going to do the promise of God that God promised our father Abraham. They get out to the wilderness and they start grumbling. Come on now. How many know a grumbler can steal the joy out of any promise? <laughs> they start grumbling. We're hot. We're walking in the desert. We don't have the food and enough water. Moses doesn't know where he's taking us. And God could have just left us at least in Egypt. We got food and water. Yeah, they whipped us and beat us and made us work. But, you know, at least we had food and water. We knew what we were doing every day. And they start grumbling. God's like, all right, this isn't the generation that's going to get there. So they wander around in the desert some 40 years. And God raises up another generation of leaders, Joshua, Caleb. And he says, all right, I'm going to send you back into the promised land. And there had to be this thought like, yes, here comes the promise. We're going to be a great nation. You're going to bless us. You're going to curse those who fight against us and aren't with us. And then you're going to use us to bless other nations. Ah. They go into the promised land. Problem is someone else is there. They've been gone for a minute, you know. And they got to go to war. So they go to war, and through a series of wars, they, they, and different leaders being raised up, they battle, and eventually they inherit and, and occupy the promised land. And now it's time. They're in the promised land, and they're a nation. There's several tribes, but they're a nation. Maybe they can start blessing the world. And instead, they're like, you know what we really need is a king. We want to be like the other nations. Why would we be unique? Why would we have God be our king? Why would we trust in the promises of God? We need someone to lead us, a fearless leader. So they do what every group of people does when they need to figure out who should be in charge. They pick the tallest, best-looking one they can find. <laughs> it doesn't work particularly well for them. And in the midst of that, God's like, okay, I was going to be your 
king and I was going to be your leader, but if you want to work this way, I'll find someone who has my heart to work with. And he raises up David, a shepherd, a worship leader. And David takes over, and for the first time in the history of the descendants of Abram, they are a nation. He wins victories militarily. They have defended their borders. They are a sovereign, solid nation. They have a leader. They're operating within the uh, 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 instructions of the Lord. They are uniquely positioned to be a blessing to the known world. David, at the end of his life, hands it off to Solomon. Solomon, who is great in wisdom, for the first and probably only time in their history, they are wealthy, they are resourced, they have military might, they have territory, they have all of the things they need to go and be a blessing. And Solomon goes, hmm, you know what else is awesome? Chicks. I'm going to build a network of relationship by marrying these other cultures. I'll bless them by taking from them their culture and involving it into our culture. And he gets married some 300 times along with 700 concubines. You can Google it, their safe search on. And Solomon takes them in a different direction. And they aren't a blessing to the nations. They're a blessing to him and to themselves. As a result, other promises come into play. Promises that God makes saying, if you, as long as you're my people, I'll be your God. As long as you stay with me and honor my commandments, it'll go well with you. But if you don't, if you reject those things, it's going to go rough on you. And those other promises start coming to pass. And other nations start turning and their nation gets split into a northern and southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom's called Israel and the northern kingdom's called Judah. And God starts raising up prophets to warn them, hey, this isn't gonna go well for you. Stop turning your hearts towards other gods, towards other things. Keep me as the center. Remember the promise. I'll bless you. I'll make you a nation. I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. I'll use you to be a blessing to all the nations. And they're like, ah, we like these other nations the way they are. We, in fact, we want to take from these other nations and incorporate their values into our values. And we're going to merge our cultures together. Some thousand years has passed since this promise. And they're in this weird tension. And for 300 years, they divide and other kings are raised. And they have a series of sometimes turning to God and then turning away from God. And then finally, God though he prophetically warned them, allows for these outside invading cultures to come in and wipe them out. First, the Babylonians and the Syrians come in and they wipe out the kingdoms and they take all of the uh, uh, kind of best young men and women and incorporate them into their culture. And there's this moment where it's possible that the entire culture of the Jewish people could be eradicated. And God starts raising up prophets to warn them about what's coming and what's happened. One of them is Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, 6, he says this. 
Speaking for the Lord, Isaiah says, is it too small a thing for you to just be my servant? To restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept? I will also, listen to this, I will ask you, the promise hasn't changed. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, a light for the Gentiles, not just the Jews. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles. Listen, most of us in this room are Gentiles, non-Jewish. And he says, I'm gonna make you as the Jewish culture a light for the Gentiles. And we know that this is gonna happen because we have the history looking backwards, but they don't know how this is gonna happen. It says that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Not just the end of the nation, the ends of the earth. Their nation is crumbling and they're getting promises from God that you're gonna be a blessing to every nation all the way to the ends of the earth. How is this gonna work? So they go off into captivity. And if you've been with us in the Nehemiah story, you're seeing the end of that captivity. They end up for 90 more years enslaved. And we see the rise of Daniel and we see the story of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. And in that same time, God begins the process of sending back into Jerusalem to worship. And he raises up another prophet at the end of the Old Testament by the name of Malachi. And Malachi 1.11, God speaks another word. He says, my name will be great among the nations. What? Great among the nations. All we've been great at is getting wiped out and enslaved. And whenever we actually have something, we turn our hearts away from you. But he says, no, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nation, says the Lord Almighty. He says, I don't want you to forget that your job from the promise I gave to your grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather Abram is to be blessed and be a blessing to the whole world. Then God goes silent for 400 years. 400 years, he goes silent. And these guys are listening to these promises. We're gonna be a great nation. We're gonna bless other nations. Some crazy things happen during those 400 years. Some guy named Alexander the Great conquers the known world. How are we supposed to bless everyone when we're conquered? Eventually, some guy named Pompey in 63 BC comes and he rides his horse right to the temple and Rome invades and takes over Israel. He rides, history tells us, right up to the temple mount, kicks in the doors, killing priests that are there serving. He, turn, he rides, takes his horse and he goes straight into the Holy of Holies. And what he's looking for is whatever idol this religion worships. Where's the idol that these Jews turn their heart to? Where's the, where's the vault where the God stuff is kept? And he gets into that room and it's empty because they don't serve a God that sits in a room. They don't serve a God that's built out of an idol. They don't have idols. And in disgust, he thinks, what a weak people. Their gods don't even, don't even have idols. And they conquer Jerusalem and the Jews are conquered again. And then, when absolutely no one is hoping, no one is expecting, no one is 
thinking about all the cool things God's been doing lately. Maybe we're gonna start experiencing finally this promise that God gave Abraham, our father, because their entire nation is built around this promise. You're gonna be blessed. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna curse those that curse you. And you are gonna be a blessing to all nations. No one's having those conversations anymore. In the midst of all of those things, in the exact perfect moment, God initiates something. And I love how Paul writes it in Galatians chapter four. Paul is a, 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 a well-studied Jew. He knew the history of his Jewishness. He says, I'm like a Jew among the Jews. I'm a super Jew. <laughs> he knows the story. And he knows that all the way, all the history I just gave you, he could give you all of the pieces and how it all fits together. And he says, but when the time had, the set time had fully come, that's when God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does he mean the set time had fully come? He says, when the absolute perfect moment was. How could this be the perfect moment? Let me tell you why it's the perfect moment. Because up until this point, none of the infrastructure existed in the known world for one people group to bless all the other people groups. But here comes Rome. And Rome builds roads and plumbing and docks and ships and suddenly the known world has a common language and a common governance and a common set of rules and a common peace. You could walk the known world as a citizen of Rome and be unmolested by any attack. No one would mess with you. And in this exact moment, throughout all of history, how are nations gonna bless nations in Abraham's time? It wasn't possible. How are nations gonna bless nation in Joseph's time? It didn't work. How were nations gonna bless nations when, uh, uh, when King David came to, to power? It didn't work. But at just the right time, the Christmas story starts. At just the right moment when all of history has been leading to this spot, we introduce the Christmas story in Luke chapter one. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin plead and pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And that virgin's name was? How come everybody knows her name, you think? I thought we weren't all that, how many, there wasn't that many Jews here. Yet we all know about a little Jewish girl named Mary. Hmm, just saying. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord, will, God, will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over whose descendants? Jacob's descendants forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. God's promise came through Jesus. All the nations would be blessed through Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. He was a Jew, but he's a blessing to every nation. This nation is blessed because of Jesus. So what does this mean? 
that God sent hope into the moment when everything seemed and felt hopeless. For some of us, we just need to remember that God is active even when we can't see it. We can have hope even when we cannot see what God is doing. Maybe the Christmas season will be for you a reminder that you may not be able to see what God's doing right now. You're not sure how it's gonna work out. You don't have the hindsight that we have right now looking at Abram's story. But God had a plan. And it may not be what you think. Israel thought the entire time it would be great. We got a promise. It should always be great. Yet they were enslaved. They were conquered. They had a good run. They blew it. They were enslaved. They were conquered. They had a good run and they blew it. Come on now. The promise didn't work out the way they thought it would. But God was always, always, always on the move. Are the things that you've been frustrated with, hopeless, waiting to see God do something? Maybe things look hopeless right now. And God's saying, just wait for the perfect timing. I'm putting the infrastructure in place. Right now, it looks like you've been conquered, but you've been conquered by someone who's gonna turn their heart to you and their resources are gonna become your resources. We see that we can have hope. And in those moments, we also see that Jesus came as savior of the whole world. The whole world. He waited till just the right time when the story and the gospel could spread. It was for all people, including you, including me. This means when we see people who are hurting, who aren't like us, who aren't experienced the same things we've experienced, that don't have the same background, the same culture, the same ethnicity, the same story, that Jesus came as savior for the whole world, that means them too. That means them too. And finally, we see that Jesus came as savior of your world. He came for the whole world, but he also came for your world. He came for your world. This morning, we prayed already to ask God for things, but I wanted to kind of end this way. You can stand with me. Matthew chapter seven. Jesus talking about praying and asking for things. He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be open. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then who are, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you? And I'm just wondering what you're hoping for this season. And I'm hoping that the Christmas story will remind you that God has perfect timing and a plan. And though everything may feel like it's not where it needs to be, if he's on the throne and he's first, you can have hope this morning. I'm gonna pray. There's gonna be about a a minute and a half on the screen, uh, a conversation about hope, and then we're gonna sing Joy to the World together. And we're going to just remember, come on now, that there is joy given to the world this season. Jesus, I pray for the hope and joy that comes from knowing that you're still in control. I pray for those who don't know what the plan is right now. And it looks scary and it looks crazy. But we understand this. You're still in control. That hope was given to us 
and it was given to the whole world. I pray for everybody we bump into and go eyeball to eyeball with this season. Would we remember, no matter how far apart we are in all the other stuff, the hope that was given to us was given to them too. That means they have value, and that means that we can bridge a gap this season and love them the way you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.